Hello and welcome to another episode of the Wild Voices Project podcast with me, Matt Williams. As with many of the episodes I'm releasing right now, this was recorded around a year ago, prior to the outbreak of the coronavirus pandemic and to many other relevant global events that have since happened. This episode is a conversation with James Glancy, who you can find at www.jamesglancy.com, that's J-A-M-E-S-G-L-A-N-C-Y, and on Twitter at twitter.com forward slash J-A Glancy. James is a host of Discovery Channel's Shark Week and a conservationist who works with Veterans for Wildlife, supporting the work of wildlife rangers in many African countries. And to top all of this off as well, he is a former Marine. In this conversation, we talk about a childhood where he felt a passion for nature and picked up a love of diving, how his military expertise has translated into helping rangers defend some of the planet's most endangered species, and what rewilding means to him. The Wild Voices Project podcast tells the stories of the people saving nature. You can find us online at www.wildvoicesproject.org and at Wild Voices Proj on Twitter. And you can subscribe to the podcast on iTunes and Stitcher. Now, let's dive in. Thank you for having me, Matt. Yeah. Um, I want to start where I often start, which is by asking whether or not there was a wildlife or nature background to your childhood. Absolutely. Um, when, I, when I was younger, I was a very outdoors, active kid, to the point I probably drove my parents crazy. Um, nowadays, uh, kids would be diagnosed with ADHD. Um, if someone was active, I wasn't. That's something I've been diagnosed later in life with. Um and so my mother just made every effort to keep me outside, playing out and about. Uh, we had numerous pets, including my, and I was an avid keeper of anything I could, including um, gerbils, hamsters. We had five cats, um, dogs, uh, and I was just always out and about in nature, out and about uh, with wildlife, whether that's jumping in the sea, jumping in rivers. And I think probably the conversion point for me to really finding... Um, peace, finding somewhere where uh, I felt that uh, all my ability and uh, uh, my ability to find harmony with myself was in the water. And um, my, my dad, who's a cameraman, did a lot of wildlife camera work. He had come back from uh, the Gulf War, Gulf War One, filming and took us on a family holiday. Um, we went to Florida and um, in order to sort of keep me quiet, they uh, took me diving and I did my paddy open water course. And on that first dive, um, I dived, there were sharks, bull sharks. Um, and as a kid, I didn't have any fear, didn't know anything about them. Mm-hmm. And I was fascinated. And I came home from that trip, went down to the local bookshop, independent bookshop, and bought every single book on sharks uh, and, re- and, and indeed on marine life. And that was my sort of conversion to being um, somebody that uh, takes a passionate interest in, in, in all things that are, that are wildlife. Um, do you remember what you saw um, specifically or what it felt like on that first dive? The first thing I saw as we jumped in uh, was a 
shoal of new jellyfish, one of which was stuck on my stomach. And I remember screaming because I didn't know what it was. And I felt these very sharp little burning sensation. Um, it's not like a Portuguese man it's not dangerous, but it's really uncomfortable. And I was 13, I didn't know anything about it. Mm. All I knew the next thing that happened was the instructor uh, released um, the, the pressure from my BCD, my buoyancy device. We went down below the shoal and then it was suddenly peaceful and calm and there were fish around us. Uh, and I wasn't scared at all. It was very, it felt like a natural experience to me. I was a strong swimmer um, at that age. And as we went deeper, uh, we could see the wreck of a, of a ship of a, uh, an old tug. And round that were sharks um, swimming peacefully. And it, I just was completely mesmerized to the point I was swimming towards them and being held back by the dive instructor and my father. That moment um, is that that is one of the most notable moments of my youth with wildlife. I have plenty um, in adult hope, but that was from then on. I decided I wanted to be some form of diver, um, working with animals. And the instructor had actually been in the Navy SEALs, and I remember saying to myself, to my saying to my dad, um, one day I want to be in the, the British Navy SEALs. So when I leave, I can be like this expert diver with sharks and, and, and animals um, and that, that that set the course. Did you get the chance to then carry on diving training as well as you know buying books and reading about sharks and the oceans? Uh, at, at that age not a huge amount of diving because you know it is an expensive thing to do and it's not something you do around the UK mm. not many parents want to take you diving off the south coast of England but um, I think I did it um, a couple more times uh, before I was 18. Uh, but I then um, joined uh, the cadets and um, I then got a scholarship into the Royal Marines. Uh, and it was in the Royal Marines during adventure training packages where we go overseas, places like the Red Sea, um, that I got to do a lot more diving. And that's where um, I really sort of honed my expertise uh, in the underwater world. I wanted to ask about your time on tour and whether or not... <clears throat> wildlife, nature, experiencing that was something that you kind of had to completely leave behind during that period or whether it was something that you managed to come back to in between tours? What role did it play? Well, I was sponsored through university by the Marines. Mm. I had time to do a lot of travelling uh, and that's where um, I realised that even though I was studying history, um, I'd have probably been more comfortable doing zoology. Um, I, I had done geography at A level. Um, so I did in, in, um, get myself completely... Um, ingratiated in jungles in, in Southeast Asia. So I, I, I learned a lot about the environment. But, but what I would say is when I grew up um, as a child in, in the 90s, the only environmental issues that really were, were talked about were sort of Michael Jackson's Earth Song, a bit of rainforest destruction, mm. but it was not a mainstream thing. Mm. When you went diving in the Red Sea, uh, I actually went diving um, in, um, uh, off the coast of Australia and, and the Barrier Reef. Uh, whilst at university, there wasn't uh, any large-scale destruction. When you got in the water, you'd immediately see an abundance of marine life. So this is before the real uh, long-term effects, the disastrous effects of um, overfishing, of industrial commercial fishing had kicked in. So back then, actually, you actually saw a lot as an amazing experience. Uh, if you uh, fast forward to where we are today, it's completely different. It, you're very unlikely to see anything. But back to your question, whilst I was on, on tour, whilst I was in the Marines. What happened whilst I was at university as well, p political events did actually change the course of my life. 9-11 happened. Mm -hmm. And 
rather than having a military career where in the 90s you'd be doing a lot of adventure training, going to you know going to different environments and doing sort of climatic training, getting a lot of time off. Um, it was all Afghanistan and Iraq, and I served three tours there. Uh, and I can honestly tell you, um, the only thing I saw in places like Afghanistan and the Middle East was a, a miserable life for animals that are in the in the conditions they're kept, uh, and not much else. Because uh, in the middle of a war zone, uh, a lot of the a lot of wildlife is is often killed. And the most um, vivid display of that was when I was in Sierra Leone. We did a jungle training package. And the jungle was silent. And they said the reason it was silent was because uh, a lot of the animal, the, the population was pushed into the jungle, out of Freetown, um, out of the towns by the West Side Boys because they were, they, they, they were hacking off the limbs of the, the general population. It was sort of authoritarian, uh, Wild West rules. And so the people had nothing to live on. They weren't on their farms. And so they killed everything, every monkey, every, um, every small animal, and every insect. And... At that time, when I went, the, the wildlife hadn't recovered. But I did get the opportunity to deploy to Brunei and Belize. And the contrast to see a vibrant, beautiful eco, um, ecosystem that's just full of biodiversity, that sort of recaptured my heart and made me realise I need to keep coming back to these places. To, to what extent, um, you know, to what extent in your eyes is environmental destruction and loss of wildlife a global crisis and to what extent you know when you've seen when you've seen the impacts of military con conflicts on people and people being brutally killed does it feel kind of trivial to worry about wildlife and the environment and how do those two perspectives balance in your own mind i um had learned somewhere along in my military training to become quite detached um from humanity in a way because some of the things you experience are truly awful um the experiences of a civilian pop population during a, a war are, are probably the worst and then it, then you look at your own side the, the people that you lose and the people that lose limbs but i haven't come out of the military with a positive view necessarily on humanity which is why i found great refuge in um uh in wildlife and in, in environmental issues because uh, you know, I, I, I'm, I'm yet to find an animal uh, that commits something like genocide. They kill what they need to eat, um, uh, and they seem to have a, a, a place within the ecosystem that that will generally find harmony. Um, and I, and I struggle to see how that humanity hasn't recognised that um, our aim shouldn't necessarily be for global GDP growth. It should be for balance. Um, we really need to look at the way what we see as human advancement um, because it seems that anything we do, um, whether we grow in population numbers, whether we grow technology, we seem to cause damage to the environment. And I find that enormously frustrating. Uh, and so I haven't found it difficult to um, uh, sort of trade off looking at sort of great humanitarian issues versus the environment. I have just solely concentrated on environmental issues and I know they are intrinsically linked um, but I don't necessarily see it as a um, I'm not one of these that believes if uh, a, 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 an animal um, potentially poses a threat to humans that the, the animal should be destroyed that human 
uh, wildlife conflict needs to find balance where we do accept risk in the same way as we accept risk of having cars that should kill and kill a child or kill somebody. We should we've got to accept risks of, for example, living amongst uh, wolves or lynx or uh, major predators in the same way as they do in some parts of the world. They find that balance. Um, we are the greatest crit crit uh, hypocrites in the West that we refuse to have any wildlife risk. Um, and therefore, we can't live in balance with the ecosystem. To what extent do you think some military conflicts in the world are at least partly caused by environmental crises and environmental destruction? I think that's a, a really valid question. And I think it's actually based in evidence throughout history that great migrations and movements of people have occurred because of climate change, natural climate change. Um, people move because of changes in um, in weather, uh, because uh, crops can't be grown due to um, great droughts or flooding, and that that's been proven. And when people move, and they move into someone else's territory, that creates conflict. In the same way, actually, as it does in the animal kingdom, when an animal is moving uh, because it's uh, no longer able to dominate that territory, it will inevitably come into conflict with another species or another uh, another animal. Um, so. We are very similar in that sense. And what you've seen in Syria and in uh, Somalia, in East Africa, is uh, symptomatic as a result of climate change. And probably this time, human-induced climate change. So great droughts uh, in uh, Somalia, uh, in Sudan, have caused uh, great movements of people. Um, and as a result of that, uh, you see tensions rising. Uh, and, and the breakout of conflict, the same in Syria. Now, of course, there are many more human, political, socio-economic factors. It's, it's not simple just to say it's a result of climate change. But Syria is a case of the point where you see a lot of people moving from rural areas where they were um, arable farmers, moving to cities, and that creates a great tension. And that, that creates a tinderbox of which uh, bad political decisions, bad political uh, decisions, judgments by people like Assad uh, ignite that and turn it into, into a civil war. My fear for uh, the future is that because we're uh, getting, moving towards 9 billion people mm. uh, on planet Earth and because the world is heating up, um, you know, more people mean, means more competition for resources, more movements, more migration, which inevitably means more conflict. Conflict is only bad for the planet. Um, do you think the, the military establishment has started to see that threat looking ahead several decades hence of environmental causes playing an increasing role in, in conflict? I would hesitate to use the word the military thinking several decades ahead. <laughs> but um, actually, you know, there are really good think tanks such as the Royal United Services Institute, Chatham House, that do look at um, the future and, and, mm. and help the military strategize um, for um, future conflicts. And there's no doubt climate change is, is considered to be um, one of the fault lines for future conflict. Because especially if you look at coastal areas um, where we have rising uh, sea levels, that's going to cause a huge amount of human misery. People have to move. Um, but also the coastal areas are access points for, for the military um, in terms of delivering aid, evacuating people. So that does, that does factor into um, uh, future planning. But I just don't think uh, globally, uh, cut at the um, national level, international uh, level, that we 
are really prepared for major climate change and as a result of climate change, major move movements of populations. Um, I want to get into the detail of um, Veterans for Wildlife and that work in a moment, but just before that, what were some of the most important skills that you learned through your time on tour and in the military that you've brought into your current work on, on conservation? I think first and foremost, the military gives you a great all-round survival capability to be in any environment. And if you want to um, deliver work in the field, in, in an environmental, in a conservation capacity, you need to be able to operate uh, on your own or with a team in um, the jungle, in uh, cold environments, in hot, arid environments. And that requ requires a certain amount of uh, personal administration. If you, if you can't look after yourself, mm -hmm then uh, you're going to um, uh, disadvantage the team you're working with and delivering, delivering your mission. So that, that comes with huge advantages. And then there is that, that, that word mission, delivering something, deliver, achieving a task, is the premise of really what the military does. Organizing a team, making a plan, um, ensuring that you can uh, lead a team to deliver it, that's all um, absolutely the fundamental core business of the military. And so when you take that to uh, NGO or conservation work, um, the missions change, generally not with, with weapons or um, fighting uh, another an opposing force, but you are working generally in, on, on ground, ground or environments that are, are challenging to survive in. And you're delivering, um, your mission is to, could be a variety of things, which usually either research, uh, conducting anti-poaching training, um, scientific, um, scientific work and, and enabling people to car carry out um, projects. So the, the core skills are very, very similar. So what was the bridge for you between your time in the military and conservation or maybe Veterans for Wildlife specifically? And how, I suppose, what was the conversation or experience that got you involved in Veterans for Wildlife? So as I was leaving the military, um, I think a lot of people don't know what they want to do. And I I was spending any spare time and money I had going around the world diving or going on treks to jungles or into mountains uh, with a camera to photograph wildlife and make short films. Uh, and then back in my um, home life or with work life, I was setting up a security risk management business. And it got to the point where I thought, I'm not enjoying the corporate world. London doesn't, or well, cities don't do it for me. I like spending a bit of time in them, mm. but I am working in order to fund what I really want to be doing. And yet when I'm out in these places and you're speaking to rain, park rangers or guides, and I, I thought, you know what? I actually have all the skills from the Royal Marines to be one of these people or to deliver projects. I could live, I could make my life this, doing what they do um, and, and making that bridge between having a fundraising capability, organizational capability from the UK for delivering projects overseas. Uh, and by chance, a former Royal Marine introduced me to Veterans for Wildlife, which was set up by a guy from the British Army and the Royal Marines. And um, they they said, yeah, you know, there's, there's space for volunteering work. And I was able to c connect the charity to a number of um, uh, donors who uh, contributed to the charity, which gave us a better funding platform and created uh, some links to new projects, including um, ZSL, Zoological Society of London. Uh, which has allowed the charity to grow. And that 
by volunteering, I've sort of formalized my role mm. just by making myself useful. Uh, and I've ended up running uh, ranger training programs in South Africa. So it's kind of just been a sort of natural um, progression from uh, trying my hand at the corporate world to fully immerse myself in the wildlife world with Veterans for Wildlife. Because I think realistically, had I applied to a charity like um, you know, WWF, um, it wouldn't necessarily be recognised that where my skill sets would lie. And Veterans for Wildlife has taken us straight out to the front mm. uh, to add value to anti-poaching teams and then learn a lot more about the softer side of community engagement, conservation, uh, the science behind um, and the environmental work that uh, a lot of good organisations do. And that sort of generally allowed me to transition from the military uh, to a conservation role. So I read on the Veterans for Wildlife website that uh, the illegal trade in wildlife is the fourth largest international crime, which I think perhaps shows my naivety that I haven't realised quite the scale of it. Could you talk through in your own words what the impact of the illegal trade in wildlife is? Yeah, I mean, it, it's extraordinary. But if you think of a great flows of uh, illegal um, uh, criminal networks across the world, you can think of narcotics. Um, generally, cocaine, marijuana is shipped around the world by by networks, but those same networks, um, whether they are they are gangs, they are corrupt officials in government at ports uh, that transport, that organise the logistics to transport drugs, they also um, are involved in human trafficking, uh, which is one of the largest um, criminal networks in the world. They're also involved in trafficking illegal weapons around the world. But another part that people don't realise, the same networks traffic wildlife. That's live animals, whether that's uh, birds, cheetah cubs, a variety of things that are, are in high demand for people to privately own, whether that's animal parts, that's um, fur, bones, ivory, rhino. These things have an increasingly high value, whether it's for medicine or just vanity. Uh, and that has grown, their value has grown exponentially in the last 20 years. And so it's become as lucrative, if not more lucrative, to traffic rhino horn than cocaine. And so as a result of it, um, it is now the fourth largest illicit crime worldwide. And um, the United Kingdom held a conference in London in September 2018, very successfully bringing together um, uh, almost all, every country in the world had a representative there and um, discussing the issues around illegal wildlife trade and not just the trafficking of animals and parts, but also the financing of it because we're talking an industry worth over 20 billion, which means the money has to go somewhere. There has to be a flow of, of cash and people to, to make this happen. And um, so it's been bringing, bringing that together, but it's one of those things that's only really gained the attention uh, of uh, governments and organizations in the US, UK, to, to realize just how, how big a problem this is. Are there complementary approaches alongside the work that Veterans for Wildlife does trying to tackle some of the economic drivers of this, this trade? So Veterans for Wildlife was set up um, for veterans from the police, mm -hmm. armed forces uh, and uh, emergency services. The idea being is those people have a huge number of skill sets that are valuable for communities around the world that work in conservation projects. Essentially, if you're an ex-serviceman or an ex-policeman, you can train somebody with your knowledge uh, to work in conservation. 
The projects that we're running with the Zoological Society for London in Cameroon are ex-policemen uh, training uh, rangers in the evidential process, in investigations. So they can, they can um, if they come across a crime scene, say they come across a slaughtered um, animal, they can gather evidence from the scene, which can then, if they um, are successful in finding the person that committed that crime, they've got the evidence to take them to court. They're also learning investigative capability um, to understand the criminal networks. And then that allows them to dismantle those networks. So that work is absolutely critical to supporting um, the battle against illegal wildlife trade. We're training low-level skills to improve the capacity and capability to reduce those criminal networks. Uh, and we're doing that in South Africa, uh, Namibia uh, and Cameroon at the moment with Veterans for Wildlife. So it's absolutely critical skills, good quality skills um, for ranger forces, police forces, anybody working in conservation are an essential element of countering um, the illegal wildlife trade. And what might, could you walk us through what one of those ranger training programs might look like, what the, what the skills that you would teach them would be, how long it would last, what, you know, what would be the kind of changes in terms of practice on the ground after it? Yeah, absolutely. So um, we're working, we've got a new project we're working on in KwaZulu-Natal. Um, it's interesting because it's about 100 kilometres away from Lorks Drift, um, it's three hours north, north of Durban, in a beautiful uh, bushveld countryside, natural habitat for the black rhino. And this piece of land, last rhinos, black rhinos are killed off there in 2014. So we're working on a program to reintroduce into the area. The Rangers, the Zulu community, um, there, there aren't many jobs in that area and literacy rates are low. So working with a Project Rhino um, who are doing, um, and Rhino Art, who are doing engagement with the community at schools to educate kids about the value and to appreciate wildlife and, and supporting education. Meanwhile, Veterans for Wildlife are running range of training programs, which consists of basic fitness, basic uh, literacy, basic understanding of uh, the ecosystems and, and the wildlife that's around them. They're actually all very good trackers. They're better than us. They, they know that the signs are ground signs of animals, mm -hmm. which is really good so we can incorporate that local knowledge. Then they get basic weapons training, uh, teamwork, leadership, um, patrolling in the bush, living in the bush, um, how to track poachers, um, how to... Um, restrain and uh, um, investigate um, poachers should they find them in order to, to work with the police or prosecutions. So they're essentially getting this quasi-police um, military training package which allows them to operate alone or as a team to prevent poachers coming into the area to kill rhinos or any other, other wildlife. So they learn everything from the ability to survive on their own, um, use a weapon, and if they do come across an incident, a crime scene, to, to get uh, basic evidence in order to support a prosecution. And the poachers, are they, um, I suppose I'm interested in understanding what their motive is, you know, obviously the motive for the, for the crime as a whole, the illegal wildlife trade is, is financial, but are the poachers seeing a big proportion of that? Or is it that it's financially lucrative enough for them that it helps to tackle things like medical bills, for example? One of the, the things I, I really tried to do when I was in Kenya was understand why you would kill uh, an animal and put it through a lot of misery. So why why would you be happy to cut the horn off a rhino whilst it's alive? Yeah. You know, hack it off, causing great distress, and then, you know, shoot the baby. Um, what 
why are we so brutal? Now, if you look at some of the deprivation, look at the slums in areas like Kibera outside of Nairobi. Million people crammed into very few hectares of land. They're, they have absolutely nothing. You know, you're more likely to get raped, killed um, by your 30th birthday than you are to make any money or get, you know, get yourself out of that deprivation cycle. So you, you have no way benefit from having a vibrant ecosystem in Nairobi National Park and in my Masai Mara. It's of no interest to you. In fact, it's two different worlds. It's wealthy people that can afford to go and see that and enjoy wildlife, and you can't. So why wouldn't you, uh, if you were to get paid 300, say 350 pounds to go and kill a rhino, and yet the average um, monthly wage is about $10 a month, or maybe at $30 a month, one, $1 to $2 a day. Mm-hmm. If you got offered that sort of money to go and do that task once, it's addictive. Why wouldn't you do it? Because rhinos are no benefit to you in that in that world. Um, that's still a small amount of money to for that horn is worth up the line, but it still makes sense financially to do it because it's your opportunity to do to get up to get a, get ahead. Mm-hmm. And so it's a socio-economic problem uh, combined with corruption in these countries. But you have to understand why people do it, and it it does make financial sense for them and at the same time they don't feel like they're losing anything because they don't directly benefit from wealthy tourists going over to take photos of these amazing species and when you understand that problem you can see where you've got demand from asia and where you've got people in poverty who want to climb out of that trap and then you've got an abundance of wildlife which is badly protected and um not really valued by these countries or, or a lot of the population, not everybody. Um, that's why we have such a, a drastic cycle in poaching for things like pangolin scales, rhino horn and ivory from elephants. What do you feel like you've learned from, be it the, the local rangers or maybe just the wider local communities? Well, I think linking back to what we were saying about why be a poacher, um, I have huge admiration for the, the rangers and people working conservation around the world because they get paid so little. They work very long hours in very tough conditions mm-hmm. and now an increasing threat. Rangers are, are regularly killed, whether it's looking after um, gorillas in um, Virunga or whether it's trying to protect rhinos and elephants. And... You, and you just realise that there are so many amazing wildlife champions around the world from local communities doing an, an absolutely fantastic job. The flip side to that is they are so badly looked after um, by wildlife services or by their governments uh, for doing that job is that you do get corruption. Because if you think the average wage in... Kruger National Park. It's about I worked as three. We worked as three hundred thirty pounds a month. Now, what I was saying about poaching a rhino, you might get about three to four hundred pounds. Mm-hmm. Um, you can see why you might cut a deal with a poaching network to give some information away. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that's one of the challenges we're facing. But um, not enough is is said about the, and it's not just the rangers. It's anybody working in any area of conservation in the field. It's generally quite badly paid for. Um, humanity doesn't attach enough value 
to ecosystems, to wildlife. Uh, and I think that's the one thing um, we need to make more noise about, singing the praises of the people really working hard day in, day out uh, for the preservation of the environment and the amazing species that we're losing so quickly. It's interesting, actually. So you were saying at the beginning of the conversation about how when you first started diving, you know, you didn't see the destruction and yet today you really do see it. So much has changed. I feel like when I was growing up in the early 90s, you know, when I first got leaflets and posters from Friends of the Earth and WWF, they mentioned the illegal trade in wildlife. It was it was a thing. Um, and today it seems like it's still a massive problem. Do you think things have changed in terms of there being beyond veterans wildlife? Do you think things have changed in terms of there being more protection, more rangers on the ground? Or or if not, why do you think it continues to be so under-resourced? Um, I think it depends where you're looking because there are limited conservation success stories. Um, if you look, the, the, you know, in India has done well mm -hmm. uh, with some tiger populations. Uh, it's still... A, disastrous story we're still, still talking hundreds and early thousands in terms of numbers in other areas and Botswana has been successful uh, in uh, preserving its uh, ecosystems but they've just taken a very backward step by disarming um, rangers and now they're seeing a as a consequence that poachers uh, at will taking elephants and rhinos I think it's been um, under-resourced because uh, humans haven't generally uh, realized that we are part of the ecosystem. We can't micromanage everything on earth. We can't always find a solution. And by undervaluing, for example, a healthy marine ecosystem, thinking that we can just keep endlessly fishing and trawling and it will uh, keep reproducing, it will keep reestablishing itself. Um, and even when people have been saying, no, this is not possible, they have been... Um, vilified as almost extremists. And being an environmentalist in countries like in America um, or even China is seen as a, as a bit of a fringe thing. You're seen as a bit of a lunatic. Mm. You know, the word tree hugger is deliberately uh, derogative mm. in order to undermine that person's position. It doesn't matter if it's couched in science. And I think uh, it's a bit, it has been a bit of a taboo. Uh, in the same way, things like, you know, there's been a, people talk about the stigma attached to mental health. I think there's been a stigma attached to being uh, somebody that really cares about the environment, cares about wildlife. Uh, so that's that has been a problem, which, which as a result of that, you don't see um, governments funding uh, national wildlife services in the same way as they fund uh, ambulance or military services. It's just not seen as a priority. Um, uh, there's a huge disparity between, say, in the UK, DEFRA, uh, the NHS, the Ministry of Defence, or any of the other departments, because it's what we value. We value our own, you know, of course we value our own health, but we haven't linked that to environmental health, mm -hmm. which is which is crazy, but that's the reality. Mm. Could you talk us through an example of one of the places or one of the projects where you've been involved in helping to provide training, perhaps, or community education and you've seen a difference in terms of the approach of the rangers and perhaps the community and then also a knock-on benefit for the for the wildlife in that place. Yeah absolutely and we we worked at a private reserve um, called Nambiti and also in Kruger two places two, two places I've worked and, and Nambiti it, it was very simple the um, it was just the basic 
skills of the rangers meant that uh, they 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 were unable to patrol their perimeter fence effectively without the poachers knowing where they were because they were using uh, radios which you could listen into just by buying a, a cheap radio and listen where they were and as a result poachers were coming in when they weren't at one part of the preserve and so just by improving their procedures we were able to stamp out um, poor practice which enabled poachers to come in and kill uh, kill rhinos. We um, have been even more effective uh, in Kruger National Park where the skills of ex-military personnel who've worked in, in very complex operations room uh, they don't sit. They don't go on the ground with the rangers. They they allow that. That is a, a South African piece of work. But they work in the operations room, training them how to use complex thermal imaging equipment, complex um, uh, radio equipment. So when when poachers are identified in one part of the of Kruger National Park, they're able to help them respond very quickly. In the same way as we have um, a great understanding of responding to emergency and crisis in a a nine 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 emergency services operations room. There's a lot of information coming in and you're deploying people to the problem. Um, we've been able to improve their procedures in Kruger National Park uh, through our experience and help them develop it so that they're getting to the point where they are much slicker at uh, reacting to an a problem of, uh, of poaching. We also, um, we're learning a lot from groups like Project Rhino and uh, Rhino Art of the importance of community engagement. Because having a great ranger is one thing, but those rangers go back to the community outside the park. And you need to have the community on side um, uh, with that with that reserve, with that area. They need to they need to have some benefit and appreciation of it. We can't have these two worlds existing where wealthy people go inside the fence and see all this amazing wildlife and outside it you've got uh, very little benefit to the local population. So I think it's been a bit of a journey for myself to realise that it, it's not just about giving, uh, making these sort of mini Jurassic parks that are very, uh, very secure. You have to have um, the community benefit. Otherwise, you've got two worlds which are contrasting and, and, and eventually the community will think, well, why not? Why not allow poachers to go there? We're not benefiting from this. Um, so that, that to me is an area that Veterans Wildlife and myself are trying to engage more in is the, the community side uh, of conservation. What are some of the examples of the community benefit that could be provided or that you're thinking about trying to work on in the future? It's been very effective uh, allowing our veterans to go out into the schools and, and literally just sit at the back of the classroom uh, and, and, and see how people live, the level of education, engage with the kids, engage with the teachers uh, and then uh, really grow empathy for those communities because what they then do uh, with Project Rhino, there's an amazing guy called Grant Folds um, who um, runs uh, Rhino Art and they do these competitions where kids colour in these uh, these pictures of rhinos and it's a competition and the kids that win, the, win get to go and get a, an experience of wildlife which they wouldn't ordinarily be able to do um, and they become ambassadors for an animal. And all the kids want this experience. And that, I mean, when, when I first saw it, when I saw just how enthusiastic these kids are, and they don't have, um, you know, kids just don't have any, any of the negativity that you have as you, as, as a skeptic as you get older. Mm. Um, it really makes you realize that the, the value of engaging early, um, as, as happened to myself, you know, engaging with wildlife at a young age made me essentially an ambassador, passionate about wildlife. Um, we need to do more of that. 
Um, and the, the more with the veterans were involved, like we can help support projects like that, enabling these kids to go into the reserves that we, we are, are part of, giving access, um, we have a greater future chance of success uh, in, uh, in stamping out illegal wildlife crime. Um, and that's something we, we're going to work on much more is the community, community engagement side, because actually the real security comes from the community, not just the ranger with a weapon. Can you tell me a story about uh, perhaps a wildlife encounter or just a place that's personally important to you that kind of encapsulates the good work that Veterans Wildlife has been able to do? Um, well, one of the really amazing uh, parts of being, able to working, being sent out to work in uh, these reserves and parks and, and getting to know the people in conservation is you do get some access to amazing experiences and Grant Folds um, from uh, Rhino Art, Project Rhino, uh, he took me to Imifolozi National Park where there is a ranger there who has a unique relationship with rhinos. To the, he's essentially what you call a rhino whisperer, not that I'd heard of that before, but he took me on a on a walk into the reserve, into Imifolozi National Park and we walked on foot unarmed and you know lions Prides of lions are about, and he knew exactly where to go. He climbed up a tree, spotted something, came down. We walked into the bush and then sat down. And the rhino, a mother and her calf, came around and were um, grazing, white rhino grazing right by us. And I mean, two or three meters away, whilst the baby came up to us. And this is a wild animal. This is not a zoo. Mm. And that, 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 that experience. Well, you just I can picture it now just to be next to something not in a vehicle uh, no no heavily armed presence there mm -hmm. just myself grant and the ranger uh, just just made me realize or just so many emotions one how can we possibly want to kill these animals and two you can just see it means you absolutely no harm it, it, it it's it's realized that we are not a danger to it because we just sat down quietly and it's happy to have its young calf around us this is a little male who's really cheeky and interested in us uh, to me that just reaffirms my absolute love for nature and i suppose the second one was last year filming for discovery channel as, a, as you know i'm a presenter on discovery channel um, we did a a, a two-day drift in the atlantic ocean and we were surrounded by oceanic white tip sharks 12 of them and they are a feared shark because they're they are accredited with uh, killing a lot of humans at shark wrecks, so shipwrecks. But actually the species was just the most beautiful thing I've ever seen in the water. So graceful, perfectly evolved. And they were very curious, they came came very close. But you only gently had to just push its nose away when they came close to you. Um, and they were, they were no harm to us. And, and, and it just helped me realise perception, human perception of wildlife. And our, and our lack of understanding of um, the way to engage with animals is, is hugely accountable for the way we interact and the way we view animals and we view them as something that's dis dispensable. But these, whether it's the rhino or the oceanic white sip, um, they are incredible, incredibly in uh, sensitive, uh, intelligent, uh, and they, they understand their surroundings better than I think we do as humans. Going back to the beginning of the conversation when you said that during your childhood you found peace in 
in natural settings and in spending time in nature. How do you feel today when it sounds like you've got that balance between, you know, spending time in cities and spending time in the wild a, a bit more on an even keel and when you get to have experiences like that? Um, I, I wouldn't say I've got the balance perfect. I would like to be spending a lot more time either at sea, uh, in Africa, India, wherever it may be, out and about. Um, I, I'm, I'm just about achieving it because Veterans for Wildlife is doing some great work and we've got some projects in, in, in fascinating places, but also um, the, the charity doesn't pay and uh, ultimately I also have a job as a presenter and I'm working in Discovery Channel and I've, I'm shooting a film next week actually in Palau um, for Shark Week. And so that, that balance between the charity work and the TV, uh, what is that moment wildlife presenting is, is, is fantastic because I get to, getting to go to some of the world's uh, last havens for, for wildlife and, and spend a lot of time uh, with the animals I love. What is it you enjoy about the about the presenting, about being in front of the camera and telling these stories? It's a good question because uh, I just think I've always naturally been a bit of a an, an actor, somebody who liked being on stage. In fact, I wanted to go to RADA, uh, but I ended up joining the Marines. But even when you're in the military, uh, as an officer out front presenting, uh, I what I like about television uh, is the ability to shine a light on something that I care about. I'm not really interested in reality TV, but I am interested in factual TV, whether that's history, wildlife or current affairs. And I know I'm pretty much comfortable going anywhere in the world because of my military training. And so I can get there. I'm excited to be there. And I feel like I've got a case to deliver to, to, to uh, present an argument for, for wildlife or something that I'm interested in. And Discovery Channel's given me this opportunity to show my passion for sharks, uh, for marine uh, species and just to shout about them and to shine a light on the injustice of the shark fin trade, for example, uh, of, of commercial overfishing and at the same time entertain. And that uh, just being relevant, being part of the story is, I think, being important for me personally. Uh, I always felt when I was in the military, I was on a mission, um, so I felt relevant. And working in conservation, but also presenting makes me feel like I'm part of something that's relevant relevant to people today. I'm taking part in a national and international discourse about something I really care about. Could you say a bit more about the um, the new partnerships that Veterans for Wildlife is taking on and perhaps about kind of what you see as the, the future direction over the next few years for the organisation? Yeah, absolutely. So Veterans for Wildlife um, has established a really good working relationship with the Peace Parks Foundation operating in Kruger National Park. Uh, the champion of that has been Wesley Thompson, the founder of the charity, uh, alongside uh, General uh, uh, Johann Juster, uh, who um, is a very well-known um, uh, person in conservation and has overseen the development and security of uh, Kruger National Park through the Peace Parks Foundation. So that's been the staple diet of the, the, the charity to grow, uh, which is now three years old. This year, uh, we're excited to announce uh, we're working with the Zoological Society of London. Now, they um, have projects across the world with tiger conservation, uh, conservation in Africa, a lot of Francophone countries. But the actual delivery of uh, support to rangers, uh, to support to scientific work, requires uh, boots on the ground, people to be there 
in harsh environments uh, and provide training or support. And Veterans for Wildlife has literally hundreds in the early thousands of volunteers, people willing to provide their services to go and support these, um, these programs. So we have thousands of people, hundreds every week sending in their CVs, ex-policemen, ex-military, who want to go and work in Africa and help train rangers, help and train police, law enforcement individuals, um, investigative um, work. We've got so, so many volunteers and that um, has been a really great marriage with ZSL because they've got access, uh, they've got the funding, they've got an amazing reputation for uh, competence and delivery. Uh, but one of the miss missing pieces is that sort of tip of the scalpel, which is um, people that are capable of working in any environment and deliver it. Um, so that's that's where we, we see that relationship growing. We're excited about that. And it starts in Cameroon uh, in two weeks' time. Uh, and we've got three or four courses running in Cameroon. And we'd like to see that roll out um, across uh, sub-Saharan Africa. Um, I read again on the Veterans for Wildlife website that... Um that in some countries the local trade in rhino horn is legal while the international trade in it is illegal. I was wondering if you could explain the rationale behind that and why it's legal to trade it locally. Well, it's worse than that because you could trade rhino horn in the UK. Right, pre okay. Rhino horn pre-1945, an antique rhino horn. Right. But of course, uh, if you saw a piece of rhino horn, could you tell me whether it was 1965 or 1935? Yeah. And so that uh, allows a mechanism for um, illegal wildlife trade and rhino horn to happen. Even in, in Western Europe, you can buy auctioned rhino horn. But of course, some of it is rebranded as, as uh, antiques when it's not. Mm -hmm. um, so there is a disparity even here. Same with shark fins. You know, you, you can buy 25 kilos. You can take 25 kilos of shark fin in and out of the of, of European Union. Um, so there is a, disp a disparity uh, in Vietnam, uh, Thailand. It's totally legal to buy rhino horn for uh, medicine purposes. It's legal to, uh, and it's ground down into powder actually. It's and, and ornaments. It's a highly desirable item to have something carved out of either ivory or rhino horn. But internationally, uh, there is a ban on that. So you have. I can't explain to you why you have national discrepancies versus uh, international ones but at the end of the day national governments are sovereign and if there is no punishment or there is for going against um, what is an international ban mm -hmm. and South Africa itself is still talking about um, having sales of its um, it's got lockers full of ivory and rhino horn that it has um, uh, taken from poaching networks and it is talking about having sales of them uh, because they think that uh, if you flood the, the market with these products, it may reduce the, the price. But the other, the other um, school of thought of actually it will stimulate demand. And the reality is that they don't have enough in these reserves to, to, to reduce the demand. It can only cause a problem. But uh, I can't tell you exactly why there's a discrepancy between international and national law. But I, what I do know is that national law will also always take precedence because these aren't treaties that are really enforceable and that's one of the major issues and it's in the same way that uh, we have an international whaling ban but Norway, Iceland and Japan despite operating within the international uh, system a rules-based system for pretty much everything else they put two fingers up to the international community 
And so we're going to wail anyway because it's something culturally and historically we've always done. Mm. Um, oh yeah, that's that's another thing that I wanted to ask. So um, you said that you felt you might have been more more comfortable studying zoology than history. You, you are, or you have recently started studying zoology, and I wanted to ask how you're finding that. Yeah, I but but that is as at the diploma level. Yeah. Quite literally, just because I feel that even though I have learned a lot about wildlife from uh, since being a child, and there's nothing better than being in the field to learn, um, you still need a, a scientific uh, understanding. So um, I'm actually taking an A level in biology. I did A level at GCSE, taking an A level in biology, and doing a diploma in in zoology, just per, as personal development, because I think especially when you're talking to people who don't believe in climate change or don't really understand processes such as rewilding, something I'm passionate about, um, it's difficult to talk with any authority if you don't really understand the intricacies of scientific research behind it. So it's a personal development thing for me. But at the same time, I'm 36, I don't really have time to go back, as much as I'd love to go back to uni yeah. and do four years, um, I don't have that, that time to go become a fully-fledged zoologist. I'll just pick up on the word rewilding. So what, what if anything, does rewilding mean in the context of some of the countries that we've, we've spoken about where there's the poaching threat, or is it a kind of completely irrelevant concept there? Is it, is it something that's more for European countries in the UK and maybe the US? It's very country-specific because in some of these places, they are wild. Mm. It's the case that they are wild and their ecosystem generally... Uh, is in, in good order, but is suffering from human encroachment, from farming, overpopulation, and then deliberate targeting for, targeting for legal and illegal logging. Mm. So actually, you know, let's take um, somewhere like Belize or South America, which are jungles there. It's a case of preserving the wild. Look at the United Kingdom and uh, you'll, you'll struggle to find a truly wild place. Yes, the Kengorns National Park is a large tract of land, but we removed all the predators. Mm. So yeah. it's not a natural ecosystem because it's got a, an abundance of grazing animals, which doesn't allow uh, basic um, uh, tree, uh, so trees or bushes to grow, which basically that, allow, that kills the biodiversity of that ecosystem. So me, for me, rewild, rewilding is, is, is looking back at really Western Europe, uh, taking a case examples of such like um, Yellowstone National Park in America, big tract of land which has been truly rewilded through the reintroduction of predators. Uh, and you can see a very vibrant biodiverse ecosystem. Now, granted, we don't have the space for that in the UK, but um, what we do need to look at is, is having set-asides of land but we leave uh, back to nature's natural processes uh, we remove things like uh, sheep um, farming we um, and potentially allow the reintroduction of predators such as lynx reintroduction of beavers now i know i understand this is controversial especially uh, with the nfu and farmers i understand this is uh, controversial with communities are worried about predators even though you know a lynx would run a mile uh, if it ever saw a human but we need to embrace um, uh, the reintroduction of these species to, to try and allow uh, 
ecosystems that we have destroyed over time to recover. And I think you know, if you look at uh, wildlife in the UK, whether that's insects, bird populations, they've been in a dramatic decline. Um, one, because we've been reducing natural habitats, but two, our intensive farming purposes um, and methods uh, have caused a lot of damage through the use of uh, uh, chemical pesticides, um, which have caused a dramatic decline uh, in the in the ecosystem. So we really need to reevaluate uh, how what we we determine as a natural ecosystem and, and what our plan is to um, look after what we've got and, and and regenerate it. We don't have tracts of jungle or wood or great forests uh, that they do in developing countries to preserve. We have a lot of damaged land that we need to work out how we can rehabilitate. Cool. James, thanks very much. That was Thank really you. interesting. Cheers. Really enjoyed that. I really hope you enjoyed that conversation and you can find more of them at wildvoicesproject.org on Twitter at wildvoicesproj or by subscribing to the podcast in iTunes or Stitcher. Thanks very much and until next time.